It's a big... Oh, they're, oh, they're probably going to have party poppers and cake and everything because it's a wonderful anniversary in the world of space. We've got our astrophysicist and cosmologist. Uh, from what, does the, he do your makeup, does he? Australian <laughs> Nash. <laughs> from the Australian I didn't know he was National that talented. University. I'm going to love the man. But Dr. I'm Brad Tucker, oh. good morning. I can make anything beautiful, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, tell us about uh, the anniversary of the Mars rover. Firstly, how would you describe a rover and what it does? Yes, so so as you said, um, so this is uh, Spirit and Opportunity, which we're kind of commemorating as their 20th anniversary. Rovers are essentially planetary moon buggies, you know, golf carts. They're modified golf carts with a bunch of instruments, self-driving or at least can be controlled remotely and are our best way of getting around the surface of these planets even if they don't really go that fast to see what's going on and and this week we've just marked 20 years since uh, spirit and opportunity kind of the first main ones landed on mars and started to go now i understand that uh, they were initially only supposed to do like 90 days of work but how long did they end up running for yeah, so 90 days has often been this view because of just how much solar panel it can get. And so trying to set a realistic expectation. But uh, in fact, in the case of Opportunity, um, it lasted uh, nearly 15 years. Uh, you know, uh, it really got a longevity out. Spirit lasted a little bit less. And that was partially because it had a, a broken wheel um, and when we say less, it still was eight years. So from 90 days to 15 years is a, is a pretty good return on investment for these two things. Did we find out much about Mars from them? Yeah, look, these two really shaped our view of Mars. Going in, we previously thought that maybe there could have been some water at some point on Mars, but it was mostly a dry, uninhabitable place. These two really showed that Mars was probably a very wet warm planet like Earth. You know, our modern day view now that Mars was like Earth, but just a few billion years ago and could have hosted life all came from data from Spirit Opportunity, which has kind of led to this, not just renewal interest in Mars, but also the, hey, let's get there. Let's look for signs of life and all that sort of stuff. So how does Mars go from being this uh, watery planet to being dry? And can that happen to us? This is one of the reasons we want to understand that as well, exactly. So we, we think that um, on the inside of Mars, so on the inside of most planets, you have this giant spinning ball, and this is what creates a, our magnetic bubble, our magnetic field, which on Earth protects us from radiation and all sorts of things. Um, for some reason, Mars is one, the, the inside slowed down. So the magnetic field or the magnetic protective layer weakened, and that allowed the sun to blow away bits of the atmosphere, which then eventually caused it to dry up. So we think some sort of change on the inside drove over time Mars to be what it's like today. So we don't see any hints of the Earth doing anything like this at all. But I'll try, obviously trying to pinpoint that to make sure that's A, what happened on Mars, and B, not what's going to happen on Earth is pretty fundamental. Because otherwise, you're right, we've wondered, could this happen to Earth or, or somewhere like Venus? And uh, another big um, headline in the space world, Japan has a spacecraft that's landed on the moon. 
That's right. So we, we saw just a, a few days ago over the weekend, uh, Japan became the fifth country to land on the moon. Uh, so India did this kind of middle last year. Uh, and Japan, with the Japanese space agency SLIM, uh, landed on the moon. And they just didn't land on the moon. They were really showing a essentially a better way of doing this. So to put this in a scale, when Neil Armstrong landed, his landing area was 20 kilometers. That's how well they could oh. kind of pinpoint where it was going to come down. Now, 20 kilometers isn't that small of an area, <laughs> right? You know, you're talking about most of Brisbane falling <laughs> under that range. Japan was getting it down to under 100 meters, kind <laughs> of the precision of almost landing on a runway, but also not just when they land, purposely tilting over to deal with what happens when spacecraft sometimes don't land straight because they land on an edge or a crater. This often happens. So they built essentially a whole system where they would deliberately land and then tilt over and then still work in the advent that if a craft actually does this in the future, they could still operate. So what if they sort of accidentally land where the Indians or the Chinese or the Americans have uh, landed? So this is part of the the hope is they landed in a very different place that some of the last missions have landed. But this is kind of actually that point of this accuracy. Previously, it could it was a kind of a you know a dealer's choice where you came down and if you obviously <laughs> crash into something or someone that would be bad. Here we have a little bit more control that they demonstrated now that we can come back and say, hey, all right, they're over there. We can land near them but not on them, because this is going to be critical in the future as we start sending a lot of these missions, and there's a lot of activity on the moon. Precision landing is going to be the key, so you don't have a probe that lands on the top of you on the moon. Brad Tucker, always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you for joining us for the first time this new year, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, guys.